It's Luke chapter 16, and it's on page 875 of the Church Bibles, and we'll be looking at verse 1 to 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what, that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. To Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says these words, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do believe that it was breathed out by you. It's written by human authors, but by your spirit also. And as we hear the words of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would equip us for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus leaves us hanging on that truth. But what I want us to look at is who he says that to. So in verse 1. Who's he speaking to? It's not to people who aren't Christians. Now, Jesus makes the statement, you cannot serve God and money to Christian people, to his disciples. That's the main audience. And this statement raises a really simple but challenging question for those of us who claim to be Jesus' disciples. Is money in the proper place in my life? Do I serve God with my wealth? Or do I serve wealth as my God? Look at the evidence. If I were to look closely at my receipts, what story would my spending tell about what I love? 
or what will my investments and my savings say about my heart? Or if the record of my giving came to light, what would that reveal about me? If all of the facts of my spending and saving and giving were laid bare for all to see, would people conclude that I love my God or that I love my money? Martin Luther, who's a 16th century reformer, allegedly said this, there are three conversions necessary in people, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Now, whether he actually said that or not, there's a lot of truth in that statement. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, with some Christians, the last part of their nature that ever gets sanctified is their pockets. Now, we don't really like talking about money. That's not actually true. We quite like talking about other people's money. We just don't like talking about our own. That's true whether we have loads of it or none of it, whether we're in the red or in the black, we'd rather keep it secret. And we tend to get a bit flustered if someone asks us about it. In fact, I'd say that in, of all the topics that I've talked to people about in pastoral ministry, money's the one that people feel most uncomfortable talking directly about. So you really want to make someone squirm, you don't ask them about politics, and you don't ask them about sex, you ask them how much they earn. But Jesus shares none of that discomfort. He talks about money frequently, and he does so freely and unashamedly. And he does so especially in this part of Luke's Gospel. Why? Well, because you cannot love God and money. And he seems to think that we might love money, or perhaps a little bit more than we should. Here's how he makes that challenge to us in, verse, in chapter 16. It's laid out for you on the back of the service sheet, if you turn there. But he gives us, first of all, a parable, a story, a lesson from the world on wisdom, from verses 1 to 8. And then he explains the lesson of the parable in verse 9. And then he concludes by expanding upon that parable uh, with this big challenge uh, to our hearts. That's where we're going. Here we go. Verse 1 to 8, a lesson on wisdom from the world. Now, it's fair to say that this is one of the trickier parables that Jesus tells. And it's difficult for us to get our heads around initially because... When we first read it, it, it seems like Jesus is commending someone for lying and cheating his boss. But we know it can't be that, so how should we understand it? Let's work our way through. Two characters, a rich man and his manager, or his steward, the guy who works for him, handles his business deals. And the steward, we're told in verse 1, is wasteful. He's doing a bad job, he's lazy, he's cutting corners, and he's losing his master money. And this comes to the attention of the rich man, and of course then he has to give him the boot. And he says to him, verse 2, Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. P45 time, game over for the steward. His cushy job, where he's getting a fat paycheck for doing not much at all, 
has come to an end. And so he uses his notice period to do some thinking about the future. Realises he's got soft hands, can't go and do manual labour, and he's too proud to end up on the streets. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So what can he do? Well, he forms a plan, verse 4. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He needs to do something to maintain his standard of living. If the worst happens and he ends up on the street, he needs to find a way to give himself some options, someone to put him up on their sofa. Or it may well be that receive me into their houses there is him basically hoping, look, they might, they might offer me a job down the line. Some, they might give me some hope in that area. His plan, whatever it is, is to set him up for the future. So this is what he does, verse 5. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. What's he doing? Well, he needs to act quickly before his termination becomes publicly known. And so while he's still got control of the accounts, he brings in those who owe his master money, the debtors. And by the way, it's lots of money here. We're not talking just a few pounds. This, this is, these are huge amounts of money. And he writes off part of the debt. He can't write it all off, but he reduces them significantly to save these debtors loads of money. It's cheating his master, it's incredibly dishonest, but it is clever. See, as far as the debtors are concerned, this is all above board. The official account manager has signed the debt off. He's done them a big favour. And the manager, well, he's established great contacts for the future, hasn't he? He's secured for himself friends people who can help him out later on if he needs it, probably some who will throw work his way. Now, is this realistic? Does this sort of thing happen today? Well, yeah, I think it does. Imagine a lawyer or an account manager, a fund manager, who loses his job, gets put on gardening leave. He's not supposed to, of course, but do you think it's possible that he might phone round some of his clients and offer a discounted rate if they sign with him when he starts up in six months' time. I'm pretty sure that that happens. It's not right, but it is clever. And that's Jesus' point in telling this story. Look at the conclusion in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He's not not applauding the man's integrity. Notice he calls him the dishonest manager here. He's not applauding his integrity. He's applauding his cleverness, his shrewdness, his wisdom in using what he's been given in the short time he has left to make a real difference for the future. It's a bit like the rich man says to the manager, you crafty so-and-so, 
I see what you've done, well played. He's not happy about it, he may well be angry about it, but even so, he can appreciate the move. And somewhat surprisingly, Jesus says that his disciples can learn from the wisdom of this guy, from the wisdom of the world when it comes to money. Just look at the next bit of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The world knows money, it knows how to get the most out of money, it knows how to turn a profit, to use its resources well, and it knows how to use money to make friends. And Jesus points to this man and he says to his disciples, learn from him. Not from his dishonesty, but from his shrewdness, his cleverness, his wisdom. Learn from the creativity that he has with his temporary opportunities. That's the lesson here. Now verse 9 goes on to explain that lesson. And that's our, our second point this morning. Verse 9, the lesson explained. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And what does Jesus mean here? Well, let's just have a look at it. What does he mean by unrighteous wealth, first of all? Um, the phrase is literally unrighteous mammon. You may have heard that word before. Mammon is a, a Hebrew word, an Aramaic word, and it means simply sort of wealth, money, and possessions. It's a kind of a catch-all term for all those things. It's the material stuff that we possess in this life. And it's unrighteous, not because money has a sort of moral value in itself, but because of, it's a product of this fallen world, it, it kind of comes to us through dirty hands. Jesus is talking about all our worldly wealth here. So that's, what, that's the, what the unrighteous wealth is. Who then are the friends? This is a slightly more tricky thing. This is a bit of a puzzle. Who are the friends he's talking about? Well, the clue to that is, I think, at the end of the verse. So I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Why? Well, so that when it fails, that's when the wealth runs out, they, the friends, may receive you into the eternal dwellings. These friends are those in the eternal dwellings. They're in heaven, who will greet us there in the future. Now, if you think back over the last few weeks, we've heard these people been described in various ways. These are the folk who enter through the narrow door of salvation by faith in the cross of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. These are those who come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. These are the last people who become first. These are those from the highways and byways who are compelled to come into the eternal wedding feasts. These are the cripple, the poor, the blind, the lame. These are the lost sheep and the lost coins and the lost sons who are found by Jesus 
and brought home to great rejoicing. That's who the friends who will receive you into the eternal dwellings are. They're the lost who get found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, be like the manager who uses what he's been given in the short time he has left to make a real difference for the future, for eternity. To put it simply, the lesson's this. Use what you have to serve Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost through the proclamation of the gospel. You can put your worldly wealth to eternal use. Now that, of course, doesn't mean that we can buy our way into heaven. And it doesn't mean that we can buy someone else's way into heaven either. We're saved by grace alone. What it does mean is that we're to be creative in how we use our wealth, how we use what we have to further the cause of the gospel. Now, at this point, it may be you're thinking, well, look, I don't really think I could make much difference. You know, I don't have much worldly wealth to make eternal friends with. Well, it's likely that the disciples that Jesus is talking to, they feel exactly the same. See, most of them are poor. Many of them have given up their employment in order to follow Jesus. And so as Jesus speaks to them, he speaks to us too. He, he must know that situation. He, he has them in mind as he's speaking to them. People of all different circumstances, those with much, but also those with very little. And so even you who have very little today, he says, even for you, do what you can with the small amount that you have to make a real difference for eternity. And that's what he's saying I want us to think, spend a bit of time thinking about some really practical examples about how we might do this. So why have we given money to redevelop our church building down the road? Why have we done that? Well, it's not primarily to serve us in here. It's to serve them out there. It's to create a facility so that lost people can, from our community can come under the sound of the gospel and be saved. And that's not just for now either, is it? That's also for the future. It's for 10, 20, 50, 100 years' time. They're saved by grace alone, but when you meet them in glory, they will throw their arms around you and say, thank you for what you gave. Well, how about this? You're a student, you don't have much spare cash, but you give your five pounds a month to church. What happens to that money? Well, the church then sends that money on to a mission agency, and that agency then sends the money on to our gospel partners in West Africa, and it supports their living costs. They're then able to work with local translators to get the Bible into local languages, and that translated scripture is sent out to a rural pastor in the countryside pastor sits down with someone in the village that he's working in to read that scripture with them. And the person they see for the first time in their own language, these words, strive to enter through the narrow door. And they do. 
And one day, many years from now, they will find you in glory and say, you've got no idea who I am, but my friend, though you didn't have much, truly, if it were not for the money that you gave, I wouldn't be here today. Now, what an investment that would be. Of course, there are lots more ways to use our resources for eternal purposes. And we're to be creative, just like the the manager is in our story. So you could set aside part of your budget to spend on meals with non-Christian friends. It's just so that you've got time to talk to them about Jesus. Or you could pay your subscription to join a sports club, even if you're rubbish at sport, just so you can make some gospel contacts. Could give to an organisation in the city seeking to reach the poor and the marginalised with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could use your house to welcome people in, your neighbours in, for drinks, so that you can invite them to a Sunday morning service. You could give your money to support a new church plant in a gospel-deprived area or support someone training for gospel ministry. Those are just a few of the ways. There are lots more. And Jesus is encouraging us to think creatively in how we use our resources. I want to encourage us later on as we finish our service together to spend some time after the service just talking with the people that we've come with. How can we do this well uh, in the place and time that we're in now with the resources that we have? Jesus says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when it runs out, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The worldly wealth will one day fail, it will run out, but it can make a difference in someone's life for eternity if it's used to bring the gospel message to them. Whether we've got a lot or a little, when there'll be a whole range of people here this morning, let's consider together how we can use our resources for eternal purposes. Okay, final point, verse 10 to 13, where Jesus expands the lesson out. So Jesus, he doesn't want to leave this topic with just practical solutions for his mission. He's not, he's not just wanting funding. It's not what he's after. That's why the conversation doesn't end in verse 9. Now, verse 10 to 13 shows us that what Jesus is really after, what, what he really wants above all things, is our hearts. He wants faithfulness produced in us. Do you notice that? That's the key word of these last verses, isn't it? Faithfulness. See, we are to, to copy the manager in his creativity, in his shrewdness, but we're not to be like him in his dishonesty. We're to be faithful stewards. Have a look down at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. What we do with our money reveals our hearts, doesn't it? we're faithful with very little well it shows that we would be faithful with greater resources but likewise if we're dishonest with very little then well we're going to be dishonest with much now the church across the world is full of the faithful poor those who have very little but who steward it carefully for the sake of the kingdom 
But this, I think, challenges the person who says, well, look, I, I would give my money for the gospel, but I don't really have any to give. If I, if I had a million quid, of course, then I'd give it away. Really? Well, that's not what Jesus thinks. He thinks that those who have little will use what little they have to serve him. And he thinks that an unwillingness of heart does not change when the circumstances change. See, we've got to check ourselves. Am I faithful even with very little? Now, this faithfulness, then, Jesus says, brings to us not earthly wealth in return. I'm not going to get rich by doing this. That's not the promise. But that there is eternal riches in the heavenly dwellings. This is verse 11 and 12. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the, tr the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, that is, which ultimately belongs to God, well, who will give you that which is your own? Again, we have quite a challenge, don't we? Am I a faithful steward? God's given me the resources that I have so that I may invest them in his great gospel project. Have I done that? Or have I spent it on myself? See, if I use what the Lord gives me for myself, not, not for my needs, but for my own selfish desires in the present age or my pleasures, well, then I cannot expect him to entrust me with true riches in the age to come. If I waste his gifts on earthly pleasures, then I cannot expect to gain the lasting treasure of heaven when he gives it to his people. It's a big challenge, but it's also a gracious challenge. And I want us to see that because Jesus says this because he knows that the stakes are really high for us. See verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See the word cannot there? It's not shouldn't serve God and money. It's not you mustn't or that it's not a good idea to. It's not even you should try not to serve God and money. It's you cannot, you can't. And this really is the heart of the matter. And we know this because of the response Jesus gets to these words. We see the Pharisees, they enter the scene. We didn't read this earlier on, but it's there in verse 14. They overhear what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And what do they do when they hear these words? They ridicule him. They laugh at him. Why? Because they're lovers of money. See, they thought you could love God and love money at the same time. But Jesus says, no way. He says, you either love one or the other. You either serve one or the other. See, the Pharisees would never release their resources to bring the gospel to the poor. They'd never send their money to the mission partner to bring the gospel to the nations. They'd never open their homes to welcome the stranger 
the foreigner or the widow for for the gospel's sake. They wouldn't do that. And they wouldn't do that because they didn't love God. Of course, they claimed to, but they didn't. Because this is the God who, in the person of Jesus Christ, left the riches of heaven and came to this earth to seek and save the lost. See, they didn't share his heart of sacrificial generosity. And in the end, they despised him for it. They loved money instead of him. They hated him for what he did for others. So if you love money, of course, you keep it. Or perhaps at best, you'd give it grudgingly. Or you might give it to, to get back something for yourself. But if you love God, if you love this God, Jesus, who gives everything to us, even his own life for our sins, if you love him, well, then you open your heart and then your wallet for his sake. So what about us? What about us? If, if we're disciples of Jesus... Whom do we love and serve? Let's ask the question that we began with. Let's see what the evidence says. Let's look at it honestly. If all the facts of our spending and saving and giving were laid bare for all to see, would people conclude that we love our God or that we love our wealth? Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants your heart He wants to change your heart to be like his heart. So will you give it to him? And along with your heart, give what you have to serve him and his gospel. It's pretty challenging stuff. It's challenging to me. We need the Lord's help. So let's pray and ask him. Lord God, our Father, as we've thought on these things, we need to confess to you that there have been many times in our lives and in our hearts where we have loved money and our wealth and all the things that come with it more than we've loved you. We need your forgiveness. We need to be changed. So forgive us, we pray, and change our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we may love you above all things, and that we may serve the gospel of Jesus Christ by giving our money to gospel purposes. Lord God, we thank you for the past that people have given their money to bring the gospel to us, that we're the recipients of that. We, we thank you for that, and we look forward to the day in heaven when we will greet them and thank them for what they've done for us. But Lord, too, may because of what we've heard this morning, may there be many people in the eternal dwellings who say thank you because of the generosity you've stirred in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.